You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. We do things here on a Sunday morning that we don't normally do for the rest of our weeks. Things are a lot slower, and we practice things that are kind of, I don't know if ancient is the right word, but they are things that were done long ago. I mean, one of the things, look at, we, we make and create music here. Rather than just watching a video of Hillsong or the Gettys, we listen to musicians play music, and then we try our best to join them in song. And most of these singers and musicians have been working on their craft for years, maybe decades. So this is the fruit right here of years of work. And then we do things like long scripture readings where we're all standing or sitting there hanging onto our kids and the kids are raring to go. And then we do this crazy thing. You sit there and listen to me talk. Sometimes for 20 minutes. Everyone's like, never. Sometimes for 30 minutes, maybe even 50 minutes. I've had a number of times where I've come home and the, the kind of the critique of the message has been, that was a little long, Dad, you know? Went a little on there, so I'm going to try my best, okay? We put into practice here slow things. And maybe that's just because church hasn't changed a lot over the centuries, or millennia even. Or maybe it's because it actually reflects our discipleship to Christ. Our discipleship to Jesus is a slow process. It happens over months years, and decades. And as long as God gives us on this planet, we continue to grow closer to him as life brings us all kinds of highs and lows. Because over those years, over the years of, you know, being a disciple of Jesus, there are highs in life. You know, we get our first car, or maybe we buy a house. We get what we think is our dream job, and then we quit our dream job, and we go on to the next one. And then life keeps kind of rolling along. But within that slowness is suffering as well. There is deep valleys in life. There are small things that hurt for a little while. And then there's deep wounds that leave scars that are visible for years and years to come. And so this morning... We're actually going to do something a little bit different. Most weeks, we have been going verse by verse through each passage. And so we would normally take these 15 verses and just kind of take it piece by piece. But this week, we're going to actually take a step back. We're going to zoom out a little bit. Because over the next four weeks, these last four weeks in Mark, are centered around Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And three of those Sundays are focused around his death, the cross the suffering that Jesus goes through. And so I want us this Sunday to start by thinking about the idea of suffering. It's kind of juxtaposed against what we're going to do here in just a little bit. It's the suffering of Jesus and the suffering in our own lives. And then we're going to come to the celebration of baptism and this picture of resurrection life. But we're going to ponder for the next 20, 25 minutes on suffering and what 
God has to say to us. Because Mark was written, if you'll remember this, for those of you who are regulars here, Mark was written to Christians in the Roman context, most likely Rome. And so they were struggling under persecution. There was a clash of cultures. This Christian worldview that had its son of God, Jesus, was coming into conflict with another son of God whose name was Caesar. And these believers were struggling under the, the, the tension and the persecution of the Roman world. And they would gather together on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and they would read the scriptures. And many of them would say in their heads or maybe even out loud, what's happening to Jesus? Getting dragged in front of the courts and having to defend himself. That's happening to us. We're experiencing that. We're experiencing that same kind of suffering now, for us in Canada, 2022, living in a land of pretty good freedom and a land of affluence, a land where, honestly, billions of people would love to be. Billions of people would love to be here with us. We still suffer and we still enter into suffering for short or for long seasons of life. And one of the things that we know is that Scripture actually promises that suffering is coming our way. Did you know that? Scripture actually lays it out over and over and over again. I just pulled out four verses here that talk about this. Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name's sake. 1 Thessalonians 3 says, That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as has come to pass and just as you know. And then 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. These are only just a few of many, many verses that lay out for us this calling for God's people to suffer. And even us, Citizens Church, we're only two and a half years old. The average age of our church, I did the math once, it's like 25 to 30 years old. Okay, we're super young. But even in our youngness, and even in our corporate youngness, we have entered into seasons of suffering. There are people in our church who have suffered in ways that some of us know about, that have been public, and we've been able to pray for them and encourage them. But there's been other suffering that has happened behind the scenes that none of us know about. And so it's to those spaces of deep hurt that the Word of God actually speaks. And this morning, I want to highlight three things. That suffering is real, that suffering is hard, and that suffering is expectant. 
okay? The first two may seem like super obvious, but let's just go there, okay? First, that suffering is real. This week, my daughter was homesick with a cold, probably like many of you, okay? Everybody's getting this cold or the flu or COVID, whatever it is. She was homesick, and she was watching movies. The best part of being sick, when you're a kid at least, is you get to sit on the couch and watch movies. So she watched the movie Cinderella, the classic 1950s one, okay? No remake, none of this new stuff. The old one, the original. And if you remember that movie, it's kind of the classic fairy tale where Cinderella is stuck in a tower and she is subservient to her stepsisters and her mean stepmother. That's her calling in life. She's suffering under that. And yet, in the movie, something magical happens, remember? She finds her way to the ball, and then the mice and the cats and the pumpkins, everything just works out, and she gets to the ball, and she meets her prince, and you know the rest of the story. Life is just happily ever after. Everything works out. It ties up in a bow. It's just beautiful. But I don't have to tell you, because we all know that life doesn't normally work out that way. That's why we watch Cinderella, because we want to escape from the reality of what's actually happening to us. Our lives do not get tied up neatly in a bow in a 60 or a 90 minute period. And our modern age is longing for ways and is eagerly trying to find ways to remove suffering from our lives. Or at least give us some sort of sense that suffering could be removed from our lives. That all difficulty could be taken away. It's like Andy Crouch, an author, Christian author says, is we're all searching for magic. In some way, some sort of thing that's going to release me from the burden of suffering. It mostly comes in the form of technology and the, the interaction of our phones and media trying to take suffering away from us. Now listen, I will be the first to willingly admit and say I'm so thankful for technology. We should all be saying an amen. It gives us longer lives. It lets us do many great things. It gives us insights into the world. But one thing it doesn't do is it doesn't take away the suffering that we are living with. It doesn't make it unreal. It doesn't take it away. We still are faced regularly with a world that suffers. And if we think long enough, if we think too much about it, it almost overwhelms us. The tragedy that's happening around the world and even in our own country. We support a little boy in Haiti with Compassion International. We've been supporting him for years and we, we think about him and we pray about him. But I don't know if you know what's happening in Haiti. After the 2010 earthquake, which flattened a massive portion of the country, buildings down, economy going down. Then there was an earth, uh, a hurricane that came through and just devastated it not long after. And since then, there's been multiple hurricanes either getting close or going over. And I, I think even, I didn't check the news on this, I think there's even been another earthquake since then. Just a country rocked. Then, within the last year or year and a half, the president is assassinated. And so you have here this tiny country, which is at this point almost essentially lawless. Gangs kind of running around, ruling the country, and they've been begging the international community, including Canada, for help to bring some sort of stability to this tiny little island nation. 
And we think regularly of Denois, who's there, living in that context, growing up. And if you think too long about it, it's almost overwhelming. And around the world, there's just more and more suffering. And it's appealing to numb ourselves to the reality of that suffering, whether it's out there somewhere or it's totally near to us. And so we find ways to numb ourselves to that suffering, to pretend or to distract ourselves from its reality. We get hobbies, we watch TV shows, we pour ourselves into work, we pour ourselves into kids, whatever it is, we numb ourselves. Just recently, the Washington Post had an article that was titled this, Are Smartphones Serving as Adult Pacifiers? What a great title, right? Like, editor was like, yes, this is what we need. Are smartphones serving as adult pacifiers? And the author writes this, when we are engaged with our phones, we feel we are in a protected place. You feel like you are in your own private bubble. When you use them, we get into a state of private self-focus, looking inward, paying attention to how we feel, and less attuned to the social context around us. It is our way of kind of distracting ourselves from the pain that we are experiencing or seeing in the world around us. We are using virtual connection, which is on one hand good, but it's not the full connection of how God has actually made us to be, which is body, soul, and spirit. So we're using this to numb ourselves, to hide and to distract from the pain and suffering around us, but using it as a, a false solution not actually what we were made for. And the, the result is actually being seen in increased anxiety, increased loneliness. I've got some stats I'd love to share sometime just on the, the amount of people that have one or fewer close friends. We're the, at the lowest point in history of having close, intimate friendships because we numb ourselves continually. Okay, is everybody still with me? Suffering is real. And the Bible gives us the honest truth about suffering, that it is a reality that we all live in. The Bible gives us scriptures like Lamentations or in the Psalms, Psalms that are written like a lament that express for us and that are a gift to us to be able to read and ponder over that help us think about the reality of suffering. The clearest maybe is Psalm 88. And I want to read some of the verses. This is David at a really low point in his life. And in Psalm 88, he writes this. O Lord God, the God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Then in verse 13, he writes, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted, and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. 
The ESV says that a better translation of that last line is, my only companion is darkness. I don't know if you've ever been there in your suffering, in your difficulty, where the only thing that you can see is suffering. And the only thing that it feels like is darkness all around you. What this psalm does for us is it says and puts into words what our hearts are feeling. And it's this, that suffering is real. But secondly, not only is suffering real, but suffering is hard. This may be the most obvious point of the three, and so it's going to be the quickest, okay? The Bible is a library. It is a collection of books, of stories of people's lives, it's narrative of all that has happened in people's lives and what they've been involved in. It captures their highs and it captures extreme lows. And it tells us about the suffering of people's lives. And it's extreme and so we read it hoping that it either won't happen to us or maybe something we've never experienced. An example of that would be in Hebrews 11. It says this about some Christians. It says, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Now, we might read a text like that and say, I don't know any of that. Or maybe I know a little bit of that. But it can seem a little bit other than us, a little bit more distant. But there is much, much more in Scripture of relatable suffering, where when we read it, we see ourselves in the text. In the book of Ruth, we read about Naomi and her suffering as a widow, a woman who loses her husband and loses her two sons. It doesn't give us a lot of detail about it. You can read it, the first five verses, it just says, they died. And he or she sits in that state as a widow. We think of Hannah in 1 Samuel, desperate for a child. A woman who for years struggled with infertility. There it is, the story for us to see. We think of Samuel, the high priest, the prophet, who was a father to rebellious children. Like really rebellious children. And we see that here's a dad who's struggling with knowing how to deal with his own children. And we think of the lame beggar in Acts 3 who for years and years sat waiting for some kind of resolution to his own chronic illness. Some sort of healing from his suffering. When we read the Bible, when we read through the library of God's scripture, we easily see ourselves in it. We see our suffering and we acknowledge that suffering is real and suffering is hard. We've also been looking at the life of Jesus and we see that Jesus himself experienced suffering. He was God in the flesh. He came and was born, rose, you know, lived like a young boy and a teenager and became an adult in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, For we do not have a high priest, this is talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect and has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
So Jesus experienced all the highs and lows of life, the temptations, the wanting to get out from under the suffering. He experienced it just like we did. And maybe the best example of seeing Jesus in his own suffering is in John 11, where Jesus heals Lazarus, his dear friend who has died. And Jesus comes to Lazarus, who is buried. He's in the tomb. And it says that when Jesus sees Mary and Martha and all the companions that were with Mary and Martha, and they are grieving, they're crying. When he sees that, when he enters into their suffering and he experiences his own suffering, when those two things are united, it says, Jesus wept. He cried. He was overwhelmed in that moment by the suffering that he was feeling and experiencing with the people around him and by the death of his dear friend, Lazarus. Suffering is hard. We don't have to kind of tease that out to, to kind of make it real. We've all experienced it, and we all know other people who have also. Lastly, suffering is also expectant. What do I mean by that? Suffering is expectant. Well, I don't know if any of you ha are gardeners or farmers, but you know the experience of putting a seed into the ground. You know, you grab some seed and you put it into the ground and it begins to grow. And this waiting, this expectation of putting something into the ground, it dies, it comes to life then, and it grows. And it starts growing over weeks and months. And eventually there is something to harvest from it. Whether it's a a grain that has grown up over the summer or it's a fruit that you get to harvest in the fall because it started in the spring as a flower and grew over time. But there is an expectation. We are expectant to something that is coming and we are able to harvest it and break it in. Suffering is also expectant. In this story, in the text that we just read, there is craziness that is happening. Like imagine yourself there witnessing what we just heard read to us. You've seen Jesus, maybe in Jerusalem. You've seen him do all kinds of things. He's provided food for people miraculously. He's healed people. He's been just kind and good. And now people want to see him die. And they want to actually replace his life with the life of Barabbas. Remember what it says there in the text. Look at verse 7. It says this, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Can you imagine witnessing that? You're seeing this. You're seeing Jesus who is good and innocent. And suddenly people want to release Barabbas, who's a murderer and an insurrectionist. Couldn't you in that moment just imagine how difficult it would be to see, okay, God, how are you going to make something good come out of this? How are you going to take this, this event that is so turned on its head, that is so opposite of what should be happening, and somehow you're going to make good on this? Your will is going to be accomplished. I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have experienced difficulty and suffering in our lives, either something we've watched in someone's life who's near or dear to us, or something that we have experienced, and we've asked that very same question, 
God, how can you make good of this? How can you turn this? The point, God, here is I'm supposed to be expectant. How can you do something with this? This thing that is so difficult in my life. And it's a valid and a good question to ask. And one that scripture helps us settle and work into our minds and hearts because it's so hard to answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 8 says this. It says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. It's a beautiful verse because it says what we so often experience. We too are perplexed. We're wondering, like, God, how are you going to do anything with this? And sometimes maybe we even feel that we are driven to despair, even though it's saying here that we're not driven to despair. I think it's a word of, you know, this is what we should be longing for. But sometimes we are driven to despair. We're staying in a state of being perplexed. And yet scripture again reminds us what it means to learn to trust in God, to put our hope in a God who holds all things together and who can do the miraculous. 1 Peter 4, 19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Did you hear that? 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, so suffering, God is still in control. Those who suffer according to God's will, let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is something that we learn to do because all of us are being trained that the, the best outcome, the outcome that I'm looking for is one that is quick, easy, and controllable. Quick, easy, and controllable. That's what I'm looking for. Like microwave dinner, you know? I'm, I'm in need of dinner. I need something now. I'm not gonna do anything. I just throw this thing in the microwave. Boom, quick, easy, controllable. I need to find out the name of that song. We've all done this, right? Siri, what is that song? And we listen. We want something quick, easy, and controllable. And the text here is reminding us that God is working out things in his time and that God is the one who is in control and much of what we go through is difficult. Rather than quick, easy, and controllable, it's hard, it's long, but here's, here's the good news. God is in control. God is the one who's actually pulling things together. He is knitting things together. Fred Rogers, also known as Mr. Rogers, said this, I'm fairly convinced that the kingdom of God is for the brokenhearted. You talk about powerlessness. Join the club. We are not in control. God is. And that's the good news, that a good God is in control. In verse 15, at the end of this passage here, it says this, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus' wounds and scars began at that moment. He had suffered for years beforehand. 
But now, physical wounds were coming onto his body that would end up being scars that he would take into eternity. But God still, in that moment, is working out his purposes. God is still pulling things together because Jesus is all about new life. There's no easy resolution to a sermon on suffering. I cannot either tie this all up neatly. I hope that in this sermon I haven't just opened a wound for you and kind of left it open because the answer to our suffering is that God actually heals us. God brings new life. He makes things better than they were beforehand. There is a ancient Japanese art form called kintsugi. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but it's a, it's a form of repairing bowls and plates that have been shattered and broken. And the history of the story is that it began in the 16th century with a master, a tea master named Hosokawa, who was going to make tea for a great warrior. So Hosokawa came to make tea for this warrior, and as the attendant came with the tea set, he dropped this invaluable kettle, and it smashed into five pieces before them. And the warlord, in his anger, raised his hand to strike the attendant. And Hosokawa told him to wait, and he started quoting what was at the time a romantic poem, and he turned it into a song. But rather than singing it as a romantic song, he changed the words and made it into a song about mercy towards the attendant. Mercy towards someone who had done wrong. And it's a beautiful picture, actually, of what Christ has done for us. We have all wronged God. And yet Christ came, and we're entering into that passage here in Mark 15, where Christ came in and took for us, self-sacrificed, so that he could be merciful to us. The story goes on, and Hosokawa picked up those pieces and began to put them back together. Using resin, he glued the pieces back together, and then covering all the cracks with gold, it ended up being a more beautiful picture of the bull than it was beforehand. And Mako Fujimura, who is a Christian Japanese author, he writes about kintsugi, and he writes this, Kintsugi does not just fix or repair a broken vessel. Rather, the technique makes the broken pottery even more beautiful than the original. As the kintsugi master will take the broken work and create a restored piece that makes the broken parts even more visually sophisticated. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing. He takes our brokenness. He takes our suffering. And he doesn't just fix us. He doesn't just crazy glue us together. He actually has a way to put us back together. And because he is life himself, he makes us new and new in a more beautiful way than we were before. Because now we are clinging to him and his life. Our lives will one day reflect the total beauty of Christ's work in our life. We begin to see it now. And that's what baptism shows us. It's a, it's a resurrection. We begin to see new life in us. But there is coming a day when we will all stand in God's presence. And what we will marvel at is the cracks that are covered by gold, that are beautiful, our sufferings that are made good by the grace of Jesus. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage and thank you, God, for suffering like we did. Thank you for entering into our world and for showing us the power of grace for all of us who suffer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.